HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Kiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I will try to demystify it in this program with my cook guests. And my guest today is uh, Robert Sitzma, who is one of the most respected food critics of New York City restaurants. And currently he works at one of the most influential online food magazines, Eater.com. And he was also nominated for the James Beard Award for Newspaper Feature Writing in 2005 and the winner of the James Beard Award for Magazine Feature Without Recipes in 2007. So it will be a great show. Hello, Robert. Welcome to the show. Hi, Akiko. Thanks so much for inviting me. Okay, so uh, so nowadays uh, it seems that everybody is a food critic, but uh, you established uh, the reputation as a great restaurant critic years ago. So how did it start? Um, it started out, I was in a rock band, and uh, I was kind of traveling around the country, and uh, the driver of the van that we brought our equipment in was uh, later became a famous rock star himself, okay. Ira, Ira Kaplan from Yola Tango. Mm. And he brought with him um, that book called Good Food, Road Food, mm. which kind of described where to find good food when you were on the highway. Uh, it's like and, a Michelin uh, casual version. Yes, time. only much better. <laughs> I hate Michelin, but I really love, you know, this is a, the Stearns. Right. Uh, who published this, and I think they're still publishing some version of it. But at any rate, um, you know, we would just, on the way to gigs, we would pull over and go to places that had great pies or fried brain sandwiches or anything like that. Mm. And uh, and I 
developed a real respect for vernacular cuisine. And uh, when I got back home from a tour, I started a fanzine called Down Down the Hatch, which was about food and where to find food mm. cheaply and uh, you know cheap and good food in New York City, right. and also then around the country. Mm, that, oh. that was uh, before the internet. So how yes. did you manage to? You know, you were playing uh, bass, and mm-hmm. you had a band, and you. You know, you're working, and then you have to collect all those information. So, and it was a quarterly magazine. Uh, it was quarterly, and it was uh, I would self-produce it at home on a, on my daughter's computer, okay. uh, because the only computer I had was at work. I mean, who would ever want a computer at home? But my daughter had one, and so I um, I would use it to to write about my food experiences, uh, both in New York and around the country and indeed around the world when I would travel mm. to someplace like Morocco or South America or something, I would write about it. Oh, wow. So you're so, playing music and then that's the destination. Um, I was actually vacationing more than playing music in outside of the country. I never went on a tour outside the country. But I did, you know, it, it, those were the days when people were just starting to travel a lot. Mm. And travel became much cheaper and stuff. So right. So it's um, uh, it was. Uh, I heard it. You started in 1989. That was the time the first issue of uh, um, Down the Hatch. Yes, that's exactly right. right. And uh, and then that ran for I think maybe 10 or 12 or 15 years or something like that. Oh, and wow. uh, I produced many issues. I uh, I would produce them myself. I would Xerox them <laughs> surreptitiously at the workplace I happened to be working. And then I would mail them out because snail mail was the only way to disseminate right. things. So, and I would try to keep the list of subscribers down to 300 or 400 because otherwise <laughs> my hands would get tired folding and, and my tongue would get tired licking. Right. So there's no email newsletter. So there's no click. Could go away. <laughs> That's right. Today it's completely different. I mean, you can start a, start a blog and tens of thousands of people will be reading it within a few minutes. But right. for me, everything was slower. I kind of liked it when it was slower, I, mm. you know. Uh, and I, it didn't, everything didn't have to be perfect. There were always a guaranteed few mistakes in every issue. Mm. Oh. And then do you have any example of a good restaurant that was in uh, one of the issues of Down the Hatch? Um, there were a lot of them, but one that I think of uh, very fondly that's now gone was one called Honmura An, mm. which was the first exposure of Ameri- Americans, at least in New York, to to very well-made soba noodles. Mm. And uh, I wrote about that phenomenon. It was very interesting. They had all these little dowels of different sizes that they used to roll out the noodles, mm. the noodle dough. And it was just, it was a revelation that <laughs> someone could take that much time right. to make noodles. Yeah, so it was in Soho, I believe. That's right, right. yeah. Yeah, it was in Soho on one of those north-south streets. Uh, I don't remember which one, but yeah, it actually only closed a few years ago. Mm. But, um, you know, long after, Ameri- you know, New Yorkers got kind of tired of soba noodles. Soba is, is a very austere kind of noodle. Mm. I remember reading somewhere that the most important feature of soba was where it would break when you were bending the <laughs> the noodles, so you know, and Amer- Americans are very careless about their noodles compared to Japanese. Right, I mean, because so. uh, the soba basically is a uh, buckwheat, so it's not right. sticky and it's very fragile, and it's like an art. So, well, this place was famous for flying buckwheat from northern Japan. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, and there was one other place in Midtown that did the same thing, but that flew it in from Canada instead of Japan. Mm. But yeah, they were every bit. I mean, it was kind of a harbinger of the artisanal food 
people that would appear in the succeeding decades. Mm. You know, this started in the 1980s uh, on Miran, and and they made it with such care, but soon there were many different kinds of food that people were being that careful with. Mm. Right. Okay, so that's Homuran. That's a legendary Japanese soba place. Okay, and then uh, you, eventually you became a full-time food critic uh, with Village Boys. So how did it happen? Uh, it was really, really luck on my part. Um, the regular critic, Jeff Weinstein, that was there, he had decided to take a leave of absence to go to Australia for a few months. Mm. And so they were desperate to find someone who could do it. And... Um, one of the rock writers, Robert Criscow, knew that I published this fanzine, and he said, well, why not give Robert a chance? Mm. Uh, and I'm sure Jeff Weinstein regretted that for the rest of his life because I was soon kind of like eclipsing or taking over part of his job. Mm. Uh, and uh, I won't go into great detail. I mean, he a, was a fantastic critic, and he also kind of was in on a lot of things things in food that were happening then. Mm. Uh, you know, those were very different days for food in New York City. Uh, you know, there were virtually no restaurants in the East Village that were open past 6 o'clock in the evening. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. It was, just, it was bizarre. It was, you know, how quickly the East Village has changed. Well, you've seen it yourself with, with uh, Williamsburg. Mm. Williamsburg went from being just a kind of a small town filled with Polish people right. to being just like hundreds literally hundreds of bars and restaurants and mm. you know and nightclubs and things like that so wow um, and so here we are sitting in Roberta's in Bushwick <laughs> in a neighborhood that was once just 10 years ago basically just factories and warehouses and mm -hmm. that's how fast things change in New York it's mm. a real estate driven city so. right do you think it's accelerating you know the speed of the changes more and more um, I, I definitely think that what has accelerated is the hegemony or the um, the dominance of the real estate industry. Mm. Uh, the real estate industry, uh, like in my own neighborhood, the West Village, there are probably 30 or 40 empty storefronts mm. that the, uh, the greedy landlords just hold on their inventory, completely untenanted because they want to wait for the highest possible mm. rent. And if they don't get it, I mean, they're so rich, they don't even care. Mm. So you have, you know, some people have described my neighborhood as kind of like the Midwestern Rust Belt, like we're living in Cleveland <laughs> or Detroit, because there's so many empty storefronts mm. that just sit there for years with no tenants. And many of them used to be restaurants. So, mm. um, so anyway, this kind of, you know, real estate climate means that restaurants have a very hard time staying in business. Mm -hmm. And now the, what a, a physicist might call the half-life of a restaurant, mm -hmm. of the average restaurant, has decreased to six or seven months or whatever, and people routinely put their life savings into places. But, but so much do gloom and doom, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, like, I you mentioned the you know the Cleveland, but now Cleveland has <laughs> great restaurants and because oh, they're I'm more sure. affordable. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, things everything comes around, but still the restaurants in most of the restaurants in New York or many of them can hardly be called affordable. I mean the mm. amount of you know I went to a new restaurant just a couple of nights ago where two of us ate and it was a, over a hundred dollars a piece mm. and it wasn't like we had the largest meal imaginable. It was kind of a modest meal in a weird sort of way. So. Right. Um, and that's happened everywhere. So, you know, I mean, I'm very lucky because from the beginning I've covered cheap, mm -hmm. inexpensive, what used to be called ethnic restaurants. Right. I, I was going to ask that question because, you know, basically you're now uh, the full-time food critic. You could pick and choose, like, mm -hmm. 
expensive Michelin startup places. But, you know, I mean, I think I want to go back to, you know, you started writing for Dan the Hutch, and I heard, uh, because you are a musician, and then the sound check that you do before the night of uh, your play performance, and you have a long time after the sound check, like, I don't know, five o'clock, and you had time to eat. Exactly, yeah, and you didn't really have too much money to eat with, so I sought out those restaurants that were really good deals and really cheap, and basically, down the hatch, its purpose was to publicize those restaurants to my fellow musicians, mm. and kind of perversely, I also started um, sending copies of the newsletter to uh, editors at magazines and newspapers because I felt that they didn't know that they didn't cover these sorts of restaurants. I felt like, and it's still true today, that if you were to inventory the coverage of restaurants, you would find that uh, that 95% of the publications cover only 3% of the restaurants. Mm. You know, if people are continue to be, even though people are moving out to all sorts of different parts of, uh, of Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island and Bronx, it's rare that those areas are covered in any depth by mm. food publications. Interesting way, because, uh, you know, the major, say, top 10 uh, restaurant reviewers, everything reviews the same place, you know, like a monthly three to five, and then the rating comes out, and then move on to the next group of new right, restaurants. Right, right. And it creates this kind of slash and burn kind of situation where people only want to go to the newest, most expensive restaurants. I mean, people that have money, of course. Mm. Uh, I, I, always, I always wonder who the people are spending so much money in restaurants when I happen to be in a bistro or something where they want $75 out of you or mm. whatever. I kind of look around and I say, who are these like 25-year-olds who can afford to blow 75 bucks per person every night on dinner? Mm. Uh, and I'm still not sure what the answer to that is. Hey, that's a good question. <laughs> I can't. I mean, if I didn't have a, you know, a budget, I wouldn't be in a lot of the more expensive places I go to. Luckily, I would say maybe 75 to 80 percent of the restaurants I do are extremely inexpensive. Mm. Right. And uh, mostly ethnic Yes, ethnic, I've examined the word over and over again, and it could be racist, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, among ethnic restaurants, I include European nationalities and stuff. What it means is food that has been inspired by food from overseas that mm. immigrants have, been brought, have brought here. And of course, in America, everybody is an immigrant except uh, Native Americans, and even they were immigrants mm. originally, so... Assuming that you believe that they came through Alaska from mm. China or whatever originally. So. <laughs> so something ethnic means something with distinctive origin. Yes, it, it's something you can point to, uh, you know, in any all food is ethnic pretty much unless it's food that's been uh, been so uh, so smashed down and altered that you can't really tell where it comes from anymore. Mm, right. Well, um, so part of the ethnic cuisine, Japanese cuisines, I'll ask you about that in a minute. But I think um, our listeners are curious about this question. So can you describe your life as a good cricket critic? Uh, like how often do you visit restaurants and how do you find it and, you know, choose restaurants? And oh, sure. Um the beauty of being a critic in New York is that there are probably 55,000, that's my estimate, 55,000 mm -hmm. restaurants in the city. So you can't cover all of them. You can't even cover a small proportion of them. You cover an infinitesimal number of restaurants relative to the total number. Mm -hmm. So um, 
you know, I use a lot of different ways to find restaurants. One of my favorite things is just to go to a neighborhood I haven't been in a, in a while and just wander around. I go hungry, and then I just look for some place to eat. Often I'll pi- find five or six or seven restaurants there, and I look at every one of them really carefully and then decide which one to eat in because my objective is to never have a bad meal. Hmm. So, um, you know, other times I'll read ethnic newspapers that I find lying around. And even if a newspaper is all in Thai, Hmm. the addresses will be in (laughs) Roman, you know, in Arabic numerals. And I'll be able to read where the place is. Uh, I also, of course, read Chowhound. I read Yelp. Mm -hmm. I read Eater. I read uh, everything I can get my hands on. I also depend a lot on uh, on hints that people give me. People will call me with tips or they'll send me emails with tips. That's robert at eater.com. Uh, and I love to get tips. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'll even, if I can manage it, invite the people that give me tips along wow. to eat in the restaurant. Um, wow. So listeners, if you have any, anything interesting, so robert at eater.com. <laughs> okay. That's right, yes. Right. And uh, so you say good restaurant, but what is the criteria for good food or and or good restaurants? Um, first of all, the food has to be great. It has to be, uh, if it's intellectually engaging or interesting, if there's a story behind it, uh, that's even better. If the restaurant is comfortable, if the service is good, that's even better. So, I mean, we have a hierarchy of reasons to go to a restaurant, and the foremost is always still the food, though. Although it's possible for a restaurant to be so interesting that uh, you may go and the food is not as good as it might be somewhere else, but you mm. go to the restaurant anyway. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, what if you like the person that runs the restaurant or something? I mean, are you, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe the hamburger could be a little better, cooked a little better, but, you know, we don't always get to eat the optimal food. Right. So, so it's a package of Yes, everything. It's, it's a mixture of things. Right. Okay. Um, so what was your first experience of eating Japanese food? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, that would be in the late 1960s. I was living, I was a kid, I was living in, uh, in Dallas, Texas. Mm. And, of course, my parents were into Japanese food because they would uh, visit Japan. My father was a businessman, mm. and he would do a lot of business in Japan. And, uh, and so I'm not sure if that's the reason or just because the restaurant was there. There was one Japanese restaurant in Dallas in the late 60s. And this was one of those damn teppanyaki places <laughs> where they like do this kind of floor right, show. Like Benihana, they, Benihana, yeah, Benihana. Ben, like Benihana. And they're like throwing the shrimp all over the place and they're yelling and they're, the, you know, the cleavers are like flying through the air and they're like glinting in the, in the harsh light. And of course, for a kid, this was like catnip. Um, on top of that, there was one advantage that this kind of fake Benihana had. Because it wasn't a Benihana, but it was a similar, probably a precursor, a predecessor. Mm. One of the things that they had was that they had Gulf shrimp from the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And at that time, Gulf shrimp were the best in the world. I mean, you know, I know the shrimp from Tokyo Bay are famous. And Honmyuran used to serve them, Mm. you know, with the soba noodles. But so just having access to those Texas shrimp Mm. meant that this place had (laughs) the edge when it came to that shrimp thing that they do. So... (laughs) Uh, you know, on the on the slicked griddle surface. Right. So that was the first time I ever had Japanese food. That's what I thought Japanese food was. And of course, many Americans, well, not so much today, but up until the last 10 years or so, they thought that was Japanese food. The mm. Japanese people were eating right. steak all the time, which is like a ridiculous <laughs> idea. There's like... Yeah, it's such a Buddhist country. And then <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I'm going to eat Kobe beef every day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well... 
That's an interesting thing. I've never thought of that. Kobe beef, right? Yeah. He says we don't eat like a steakhouse size. Not at all. Well, uh, yeah. On top of that,、um, beef was introduced to Southeast Asia and hence to Japan eventually by the Dutch, you know, back in the 16th century or something.、Right. So you can. Draw a line, you know, and of course, beef is important in in Indonesian cooking and Sumatran cooking and stuff. So, and in Vietnamese cooking, foremost. But you know, it was the Dutch、mm-hmm. um, that brought the beef there, and that's probably how it got to Japan. Although I could be wrong, but、yeah. but the Japanese then took the cow and turned it into this Kobe monster、mm-hmm. by like <laughs> massaging it with beer and feeding it beer. You know, they tried to optimize、right. what it was about beer. You know about. About beef that we loved,、mm-hmm. which was the fattiness, and so they found a way to make like the fattiest.、Right. Have you ever been to this、uh, Japanese butcher shop down on? It's on Bond Street or Great、right. Jones Street.、Uh, Great Jones Street. Yeah, yeah. They, you know that that if you want an idea of the Japanese idea about beef, you、mm-hmm. can go there and. See the extravagantly marbled cuts、right. and the bizarrely high prices. <laughs> you can pay like fifty or sixty bucks a pound、yeah. for steak there. I think.、So. Yeah, I forgot the name of the place, but that's yeah, really that's the destination. There's a secret restaurant behind there too. Right, that, that's that bohemian. That everybody knows about, but me. So <laughs>、yeah. I've never been there, but I want to go sometime. But you have to. Know what the number is and call somebody. Yeah, I know that. So I'll let、oh, well, you know. Well, take me sometime. I will. I'm really curious. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, obviously, you know a lot about Japanese cuisine, and、uh, you wrote、um, fascinating article that was in、uh, Eater, of course, and it was、uh, on February 20th last year. The title was "A Visitor's Guide to the East Village, Little Tokyo." And can you please、uh, share what you wrote in the article? Because that、oh, was、sure. really amazing. Um, it was really, really fun to write, and one of the reasons that it was really fun is that I used to live in the East Village, and so I witnessed the growth of Little Tokyo. I mean, I moved to New York from Wisconsin in 1977,、mm. and、uh, and at the time, I, as I said, there was very little that you could eat there besides Ukrainian and Polish food, <laughs> and and a few old Italian places that had like Sicilian food and served little spleen sandwiches and things like that.、Um, But all of a sudden, starting in the '80s, Japanese people started to arrive,、mm. and one of the reasons was that this was the era of what was called the Japanese economic miracle, right? When、uh, when Japan finally recovered from World War II and was became the economic powerhouse that it is today. I mean. Today it has shrunk a little bit from what it was in the '80s, but the '80s was the heyday. Right, and also and, the the Plaza Accord, so the exchange rate. That's ex- right. Right, ends、yes. value like doubled. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. So, all of a sudden, there were all of these Japanese businessmen, who mainly are they were well off, and they may, either lived in Westchester or in the bedroom communities of New Jersey, but they had all of these restaurants. That they、uh, that they patronized all around Grand Central Station.、Mm. They had an okonomiyaki restaurant that served nothing but that, and you could make <laughs> it yourself. They had、uh, they had three fugu restaurants,、mm. including one that served real fugu right, from the ocean. Like, uh, yeah, it wasn't farm. It wasn't farm raised. This was real fugu. Oh wow! And there was、uh, a couple of those places. Most of them are all closed now.、Mm. One of them is still open, and that's Katsuhama,、mm. which specialized in these brick. Berkshire pork cutlets. Before Berkshire pork was considered a thing, in other <laughs> words, you could get these incredibly fatty or not fatty pork、mm. cutlets. So those、um, experts are crazy about 
great food. And they- yeah, and they really <laughs> and they demanded, you know, and they had the money to pay for mm. the, because the fugu dinner was not was not cheap. I mean, even back then, it was like pretty expensive because mm-hmm. the fugu had to be flown in, and they had right. the fugu certificate displayed in the right. cloak cloak closet, the coat closet. So, uh, but anyway, naturally, there was a younger component who didn't want anything to do with their parents and as such mm. didn't patronize these restaurants or couldn't afford to. Right. Uh, and these were Japanese kids and they were attracted to the East Village because the East Village, you're not going to believe this, was the cheapest place to live in the city. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was really, really cheap. The tenements were picturesque. The um, It was associated with drugs and jazz and sex and everything that Japanese kids were trying to break <laughs> out and enjoy. So um, pretty soon, and this guy you met, you and I were talking about, Bonyagi, was one of the pioneers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he realized, came on the show. And yeah, the, right, that must have been amazing. I would never, I've never talked to him, but I would love to hear you know, the inspiration and how, how it worked out with, you know, even like the real estate people, what did they think mm-hmm. as one after another Japanese business opened up and pretty soon the kinds of businesses you would expect to find in Japan, especially related to entertainment and fashion and hairstyling were all like opening up. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, and they were soon by the end of the 1980s, there were 20 Japanese restaurants Mm. Around twenty Japanese restaurants in uh, in Little Tokyo, in nice. other words, centered around Tenth Street and Third Avenue, the Bowery, and uh, and Second Avenue and Ninth Street and Avenue A, and pretty soon, you know, occupying mm. some of the cheapest real estate that was then transformed because in Japanese are very industrious and mm. they were like building, <laughs> um, and in you just had all these amazing you know restaurants, including. Right. A lot of sushi restaurants. I mean, the East Village's Little Tokyo was one of the engines behind the popularization of sushi all over the country. Because, mm. uh, like you know, mentioned the Bonyagi, but uh, his restaurants tend to be very authentic, mm-hmm. and it's kind of an uh, educator. To- he is, except there was a kind of restaurant. Now, I'm not sure. I don't think he was the founder of Sapporo East. Which no, was not. that I was nineteen eighty three. That was and there was only one Japanese restaurant in the East Village before that, and that was me. Mm. Me, M I E. Mm. Um, but the thing about these new Japanese restaurants, they were more like diners in a way. Mm. I don't think there's any equivalent at the time in Japan. Uh, because these places serve sushi as well as sashimi, mm. as well as every other Japanese dish you could think of. And by the week, they would add even more specialties. You'd have okonomiyaki right. plus American Japanese dishes because the people that patronized them, which were both hipsters and Japanese hipsters, they, you know, the Japanese who were here, the expatriates, the club kids, the musicians, mm. they, they wanted to eat fried chicken. Right. So, you know, I'm sure fried chicken was brought to Japan way before that, but mm. it became an important part of the Japanese-American right. menu. It's really interesting that there's a contrast between a midtown and East Village and it's oh, you know, yeah. uptown, downtown. Definitely, culture. definitely a giant right. contrast. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, the the dining down downtown was much more kind of functional and cheaper. And right. So, well, obviously, Little Italy that you wrote in the article, that's uh-huh. still... So alive, even thriving more and more. Oh, it, it's places still open as fast as they shut, even though 
the uh, the real estate prices have gone up. Mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, someone like that Bonyegi probably owns a lot of buildings, and they can keep mm-hmm. the uh, you know the keep the Japanese businesses there. Also, that area has become even more popular with tourists and mm-hmm. with succeeding generations of Japanese kids who may come to go to NYU, and then you know they kind of either live there or they come there. Like one of my favorite. And the weirdest places is this Kenka. Right. And I, I think, have you ever been there? Uh, I passed by. I haven't yeah. been there. <laughs> well, I didn't go in for the longest time. For one thing, intentionally, there's no English whatsoever on mm. the outside. So to outsiders, it seems like an impenetrable, an implacable place. <laughs> uh, you know, that also, real. <laughs> there's also all sorts of weird kind of cartoonish figures. There's mm. a big kind of like bear with his lips pursed, and there's a, a cotton candy machine and all sorts of like weird stuff. Right. Um, I believe that this is a kind of an izakaya mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's unlike any that in Japan, although I could be wrong since I haven't been to Japan, but it's transgressional. Mm. It's, uh, it's intended to be what you're not supposed to do in an izakaya back in Japan. Mm. In other words, it's not just a gastropub. <laughs> right. I mean, they have a lot of strange things like bull penis. Is bull penis a common dish in Japan? <laughs> um. Yeah, sometimes we do. We have a lot of, uh, you know, milt, like uh, cod milt. Right, uh, but a penis, a bull penis, I mean... Mm, it's a Rocky Mountain oyster, basically. Yeah, but it's a penis. <laughs> it's not even the testicle. Right. A testicle can taste like a little lump of steak. I don't think it's steak. very common. But. No, it's not. And I think the whole idea was for Japanese kids who visit the place to right. really get a charge out of it to like oh man <laughs> look at what we're doing you know we're like eating in this restaurant and they have a lot of things like that mm-hmm. uh in you know plus these naked mannequins in a little diorama and you know i think the whole purpose is to shake things up right okay you know. so listeners we should go to this <laughs> village it's to discover really a deep it, it's amazing yeah culture. walk around and you'll find absolutely great restaurants right so okay so uh we'll take a quick break here and uh when we come back we'll talk about um robert's picks of japanese restaurants so please stay with us Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. 
Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is、uh, Robert Sitzma, who is the, one of the most respected food critics of New York City restaurants. So,、um, what Japanese restaurants do you like most right now, and、uh, why?、Uh, that's a good question. I go to so many of them, but、um, one of my favorites is Hasaki,、mm. which was actually one of the first. Restaurants in Little Tokyo in the East Village.、Uh, right. It's located on Stuyvesant and Ninth Street.、Uh, have you ever been there? Yes. It's <clears> my <throat> regular spot, too. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's one of those places where sushi is taken very seriously, and the sushi is much better、mm-hmm. than many places in the East Village.、Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one of the downsides of the popularization of sushi. In the East Village, is that there's some places that serve just abysmal sushi.、Mm. Um, you know, where it's kind of like old and you can kind of taste the iodine or whatever from the decay of the flesh, fish, fish flesh.、Um, this place has,、uh, they have a,、um, an omakase that's maybe a lot, $48 or $49. It's maybe、uh, 12 or 13 pieces.、Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's fantastic. They, they kind of like, They look for fish that's unusual, at least for American、mm. um, sushi bars. And、um, they recently got a, a new sushi chef, or a, a young sushi chef who's kind of supplementing the other ones and has some, some kind of advanced ideas about sushi.、Mm. So, sushi is something in America, at least, and I'm sure in Japan, is just always evolving.、Mm. So,、um, and the popularization of sushi here has proceeded in such a way that you could. Spend anywhere from $3 to $500,、uh, you know, at Masa for Time Warner buildings. Yeah,、Masa. bizarre. <laughs>、right. uh, so that's one of my favorite places.、Um, you know, and you also see movie stars in there and stuff. That's a,、mm-hmm. a kind of an insider's place, and I shouldn't have even mentioned it. But <laughs> another of my favorites is at Ketsuhama, which is from that era of the ja- Japanese economic miracle.、Mm. Uh, I absolutely love that place. The Berkshire They,、uh, pork that you mentioned. Yeah, the Berkshire <laughs> pork. They do, these,、uh, they do katsu cutlets, but I'm a, I'm a Ketsudan fan. I、mm. mean, one of my bellwethers when I go into a general purpose Japanese restaurant. Or,、uh, or even just a little Japanese lunch counter or something, I'll order the katsudan. Because、mm. to me, that's like one of the most satisfying dishes in the world. You know, you got your fried pork cutlet, you, it's mired in an egg with <laughs> onions. There's a kind of a brown sauce of indeterminate origin that kind of moistens the rice. Right, and, and the、know. crisp skin. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's absolutely fantastic.、Right. And,、um, and let's see, what else do I like?、Uh, I have a list here.、Um, I wish Sapporo East was still there, but Baron Baron,、uh, which means drunk drunk, is,、right. uh, is the successor restaurant, and that's a pretty good all purpose restaurant. I go to Johan Plaza, which is the Japanese shopping、oh, center. Oh, the New Jersey Johan. Across, yeah, across、right. the river is just fantastic. I sometimes ride my bike there by 
taking the Midtown Ferry. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, and I just, you know, out to, over to Imperial Plaza. Mm. And then it's kind of a, a walk of, or a bike of maybe, biking maybe three miles right. up the Jersey. It's a mall, so they have restaurants, <laughs> but groceries and everything. It's a it's a food court, too. Yeah, they have a food court where they have a couple of ramen restaurants. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic place to eat, to shop. One of my favorite things to do there is to go into the grocery store and see what American products the Japanese want to buy. Okay. <laughs> uh, Japanese really love American breakfast cereals, it seems, mm. uh, or at least their kids do. Uh, who knows who's buying them? But, you know, and there's a lot of other American products in amongst all of the preserved fish and, mm. uh, you know, the, the noodles and the, everything else. Right. The, so you can have a quick peek of Japanese real culture. Yeah, exactly. Like to Japan. Yeah, and it's like you're living in the suburbs of Tokyo or something because, you know, you'll <laughs> find housewives and, you know, going there to go shopping and piling up their carts with, mm. you know, wash soap and stuff like that. And right. Just a really vibrant place. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed that, you know, if you go to Japanese grocery stores, people, you know, not Japanese only, but a lot of American people go. So why do you think uh, Japanese cuisine is so popular now? Um, well, it was the right thing at the right time. I mean, it be in its uh, emphasis on simple foods, it, delicious foods. I mean, Japanese invented umami. That's, mm-hmm. you know, one of the buzzwords today. They invented uh, MSG, mm-hmm. which was uh, uh, created first in the 19, 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, also there's something... All, all nations believe that their cuisine is the healthiest, but there is something inherently healthy in Japanese food and its emphasis on smaller portions of protein and larger portions of vegetables and rice in right. their emphasis on fish as opposed to pork or, you know, of course there's wonderful pork in, in beef dishes, but those are, are special occasion dishes. They're mm. dishes that are served only sporadically, and then the quantity is a small quantity. Right. If you're going to eat Kobe beef, you're not eating like a 28-ounce <laughs> steak. You're eating like two ounces of carefully carved. And, you know, and so um, okay. Also, of course, sushi itself became extremely popular. I mean, before that, raw fish was alien mm. to most American tastes. So... And that was quite, there was an education curve there, mm. which is why the popularization of sushi is so interesting to me. Right. Uh, you know, I, in, as I began to enjoy sushi more and more, I began to realize how different it was in Japan, which mm. is not necessarily true anymore. I mean, when I first started studying sushi, to get sushi in Japan, you probably had to pay $400 and would eat in a very small place like that. Uh, movie about sushi that recently came out, Euro Dreams of Sushi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were little sushi counters where you'd pay a tremendous amount of money for just sushi. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas here in the United States, sushi rapidly became popularized. And not only was sushi served with sashimi, which is just unheard of, mm-hmm. but uh, sushi was soon being served in Chinese restaurants, in Korean vegetable stands, uh, in stores, you know, supermarkets. I mean, you can you can find sushi in the Dwayne Reed now. Right. I mean, and so that just illustrates how 
popularization not only promoted and made sushi more popular, mm-hmm. more famous, right. more desirable, well, but destroyed it at the same it's time. It's interesting, yeah. right? Because uh, if you're Japanese, you don't eat sushi more than like a couple times a month at most. Right. At, Even yeah. though now it's become more popularized. I mean, I've read things that said that, that there are cheaper, and what my daughter's told me too when she goes there, that there are cheaper sushi restaurants. Right. In other words, it used to be, I mean, when sushi started out, I mean, it, well, it's way, if you want to go way back, it was like a railroad dinner that you brought with you in a box, pressed sushi, but it eventually evolved into something that was like the pinnacle, in a way, of Mm. Japanese cuisine. So, uh, you know, just a compelling dish, one that was just delightful, but Mm. in it, you know, pretty soon California rolls were appearing. Certainly that's not a... The Japanese invention, and, you know. Right. Well, it's good that uh, made people... with surimi, for God's sake. Oh. Right. Right. Which is not. I mean. Yeah, surimi basically find, grated. Yeah. Would you sushi. find gyro making sushi out of surimi? <laughs> I don't think so. Yuro, yeah, gyro dreams of of. Yeah. Well, that's the. That's the crab, the fake crab stick. For those of you out there. Right. It's a Daniel restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Of sushi version. So. <laughs> Right. Uh, well, speaking of, you know, popular Japanese cuisines, what do you think about the current ramen boom? Because uh, sushi took decades to be popular, uh-huh. and but ramen probably took only 10 years or so to be the mainstream. Well, it, it, it just it illustrates how fads can kind of rise up and just take off so fast mm. that you can't believe it. Uh, you know, ramen went from being, we had ramen parlors back in the 70s and 80s that were substantially like those in Japan. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the most interesting things was that uh, the Japanese who frequented these parlors, they loved ramen, but they hated it at the same time. Mm -hmm. It was regarded as a foreign interpolation. It was regarded as something that came from China, a noodle that was not native to Japan that you ate because you had to. It was like a poverty food. Right. So, you know, and of course, there's the whole thing with the dried ramen package that became popular all over the world. Mm-hmm. But uh, co-equal with that were these ramen parlors. We had a couple of the original Sapporo, which was founded in the early 80s up in Times Square, which is a fine, fine ramen restaurant. Mm-hmm. We had a place called Tokyo Lamen. Where uh, all of the, that was on University Place and closed only recently, but that was around from the late 80s. And that presented all these ramen, but all of the titles were jokes. Oh, right. Like, you know, and and they would uh, call them like stamina la men and things like that that mm. were kind of references to to the illusory mm. uh Qualities right, of this it's like ramen. exaggerating. Yes, exactly, and making a joke out of it. Mm. Everything was like jokey. Right. So um, it's just like getting away from the whole authentic culture, which Japan cultivated right. for a long yes, time. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, mm. they. And it was wonderful to have that example of a foodstuff that the Japanese kind of ate begrudgingly. Right. So now, and then, it sounds like. Ramen is kind of maximized its uh, capacity, maybe. Well, maybe or maybe not. I mean, it keeps, you know, just when we think that the that the fad is running out, it's more and more places are opening. And it's mm. because kind of bankers and real estate people, right. they're just understanding that, you know, you can rent to a ramen place and make a lot of money. So, mm. which is probably not the case. Some yeah. of these ramen places have to go out of business. I mean, they're just... Five of them have opened just in the last two weeks. Right. So sounds like uh, it's going to stay like sushi. Well, I mean, it's going to be 
um, part of the... <laughs> well, or even replace sushi, because sushi, ultimately, many of the fish are endangered. Mm. It should be more expensive than it is, like gasoline. Uh, and ramen is, is much cheaper to produce right. and creates a much higher profit. So mm. when you say Japanese food, 10 years from now, people won't think sushi. They'll think ramen. Right. And uh, in, in addition to that, all these Japanese ramen chains have gotten into the act and started opening their own American right. branches like Apudo. Mm. Uh, the most recent one is Zundoya, right. which just opened up on 10th Street. So, you know, uh, plus all the homegrown ones, plus people like Ivan Orkin, who established a reputation in Tokyo and came back here. Mm. Um, Well, that's very (laughs) interesting. So, so assuming, I I want you to come back like in a year and then talk about, uh, you know, the kind of state of ramen. But so what's this is my final question. So what's after ramen? Well, I'm hoping it will be uh, udon. I mean, mm. there's some indications that people are interested in udon. Right. So udon is a thick uh, wheat flour noodle. Right. But one that's considered native to Japan. Right. Uh, so, uh, mm-hmm. but also one that's considered very inexpensive. Right. And also, and, the, like, like we talked, like a buckwheat is a little tricky to make as a right. chef. So udon is, you can pick any toppings and it's, <laughs> it's a thicker mouthfeel. It's a fun, a fun noodle. It, there's right. not too serious. So even ramen has <laughs> become way too serious. I mean, you know, and. The tonkotsu broths have become so thick that they're almost like pudding. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> way too fatty and too serious. <laughs> mm. Okay. So, well, thank you for joining us today, Robert. And I hope uh, you'll come pleasure. back. And then, yeah, let's keep talking about the current state of Japanese cuisine. Excellent. Right. So, uh, listeners, if you are interested in reading Robert's reviews, please visit eDart.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org. And by the way, we recently launched a beautiful new website, so please visit our page. Japan Eats is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher Podcasts. Today's show was made possible by Corinne and our engineer is Liz Smith. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 